Welcome to Profit's Healthcare Transformers podcast, where we'll be talking to leaders in healthcare who are focused on transforming their organizations to drive the next level of growth for their business and for healthcare. Hosted by Priya Anasia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. Transformation is one of those terms that has a lot of layers to it. Sometimes it's about innovation. Sometimes it's about shifting the way you do business. Sometimes it's to your overall operating model. And other times it's to a specific department or function. It's also about people, helping them navigate the discomfort that comes with change, but also motivating them to engage in the journey of transformation from the CEO to the newest employee. It's a journey, and that's why we created this podcast, to break down this multidimensional, dynamic topic of transformation, one story at a time. Are you ready to dive in? Welcome to the podcast. This is Jeff Gorgie. I'm going to host this edition. I'm happy to have with me Dan Lillenquist, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for Intermountain Health and also the board chair of Civica RX. And we'll talk about both those topics. Dan, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, Jeff, good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So Dan, give us a little bit and give those listening a brief introduction to who you are, how you came to the role, and maybe tell us one fun personal fact that is not either well-known or on your LinkedIn profile or, or something else like that. Yeah, so I've been with Intermountain Health for coming up on 10 years. My background was pretty varied. I'm an attorney by training, but I launched my career with Bain Consulting and spent some time in the Fortune 500 world. Had my own company and built it and sold it. Served in the Utah State Senate, ran for the U.S. Senate, got absolutely destroyed by Senator Orrin Hatch and uh, found Intermountain Healthcare about 10 years ago. And I've loved being here. Um, I serve, currently serve as the Chief Strategy Officer been in this role about four and a half years, and it's a great place to be. So fun fact for me, gosh, I do Spartan races with my boys, these obstacle course races that uh, you see out there that kind of beat you up. I've, I've done 16 of them. I've got a couple more this year, and uh, it's more just about getting through it than competing, really. I'm not very fast, but I, I love doing them. That, that is a fun fact. The fact that you served in the, in the, worked in politics and served as a state senator is also kind of a fun fact. And sometime in a different conversation, you and I will talk about our either shared love or shared hatred of, of, of politics, but that's not today's topic. So, but again, thank you for being here and good to have you. So Dan, you and I had the privilege of having a few conversations over the years at various stages of, you know, kind of work that we've done and, and writing the book I wrote, you know, several years ago that you were a part of. Just very recently, the organization had changed its name or announced its intention to change its name from Intermountain Healthcare to Intermountain Health. I would love just to hear about the state of Intermountain Health's transformation and whether the name is in fact the signal to the marketplace that you're ready to be a, a new type of healthcare player and, and engage people in their health in a different way than you ever have. Well, Jeff, Intermountain has been focused on, has been focused on value-based care for decades. And in fact, um, our mission statement is helping people live the healthiest lives possible. And to us, the best expression of that mission is when we take full clinical and financial accountability for the health of the people we serve. The company was launched in 1975 when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints donated 15 hospitals to the community. And Intermountain Healthcare started at that point. But we've really been focused on health for quite some time. And this recent name change to shorten it to Intermountain Health is natural to us and really speaks to our aspiration of something that we've been 
working to do for a long time, and that is keep people well. And when they need our care, you give them the safest, highest quality, most cost-effective care possible so they can get back to their regular lives. And and that's the role we think, and that's the, that's the role that health systems should play with our patients, with our communities. So but for, for so many health systems, the barrier to providing health and treating health rather than health care is the, you know, the reimbursement model and has been the way they're paid. And it not only doesn't reward you for keeping people healthy, it actually in some ways punishes you as less services. Tell us about and tell kind of those listening about the why that's not a barrier for Intermountain or, or how you've overcome the barrier toward being actually a health provider, not just a health care provider. Well, Jeff, healthcare financing in this country is really exacerbating the problems we're seeing, access problems, quality problems. We're paid transactionally as an organization. Most of our healthcare organizations are paid transactionally. It's, it's, you do a service, you bill for the service, you get paid for the service. In that model, the incentives are really lined up to, to treat patients transactionally. You can't actually afford to move upstream to help somebody avoid developing type 2 diabetes to help them avoid developing the complications of other types of disease or, or, you know, to actively manage that disease, it's really, really difficult to do. And in fact, it's, it's totally unaffordable for most health systems when they're paid just on a per widget basis. And that's just not, not effective. The, one of the reasons the advantages that Intermountain has is that we have our own health plan. We, we launched it in the 80s called Select Health. And working very closely with our integrated delivery system and with Select Health, we are able to change and rewire those incentives so that we're focused on keeping people well. We actually work with multiple payers, health insurance companies, on fully capitated arrangements where we receive essentially an upfront payment, and then we work to keep people well underneath that payment. So we, uh, of our $14 billion or so in revenue as an organization, roughly $5 billion is fully capitated. We, we would love to get to the point where where it's 100% capitated, and we're working towards that end. But we believe that that the payment model and mechanism, we get what you pay for. Right now, we're paying for transactional medicine in this country, and we get transactional care, and that does not help people live their healthiest lives. And so we're, we're focused on changing that model and want to lead. And um, frankly, I also think that that's one of the reasons why healthcare is so unaffordable is the, the big problems that cause the big expenses for healthcare are problems that develop over many years. And then the health systems end up stepping in at the very last when, when the problems are the most acute and when the interventions are the most expensive. And I, we just think that's the wrong model and are working towards something new. So once you shift the payment model, right, as you have, as you've started to do, then that enables you to do all kinds of different things. What are some of the kind of the newest innovative things you're doing, perhaps since we last spoke to, and and putting putting us at, you know, specifically related to kind of delivery of care that you're doing, whether it's addressing social determinants of health, whether it's kind of wrapping your arms around patients in ways that are non-traditional? Well, Jeff, we're working to build a system patient relationship and traditionally, we've asked our customers, our patients, when they get sick, to dig through their, through their wallet and find their insurance card and start making phone calls. And frankly, the market is so confusing to people that they don't know what to do. And so it's usually they're calling a doctor friend they know, and that doctor doesn't know exactly what to do. And so they get shunted around and kind of grope their way through the system. 
And what we're working on is with the new payment model, by being prepaid, we can start rewiring how healthcare delivery is done. And, you know, we want people as much as possible to self-triage, self-diagnose, self-treat. They have a curated experience where they're guided in that process. And when they need to talk to a provider, making sure that they have immediate access to that provider, that, that doctor or clinician to get the care that they need. And several of the things we're doing is in a model where you're prepaid, we're re- rewiring how clinicians do their work and they manage their practices. So to give you an example, right now, most doctors show up and go to work every day and think, okay, who's on my schedule today? And they look and they've got 30 patients on their schedule. And those patients may or may not need to be seen that day. What we're now working to do is, is have our clinicians practice in panels. And instead of looking at their schedule and saying, who's on my schedule today? We want them asking, who should be on my schedule today? Who, who didn't pick up their medications? Who pinged the emergency department last night? What's going on with my panel of patients? 10% of the patients in this country generate 83% of the costs. And so if you're really trying to manage costs, you better know what those 10% are doing. I'll just give you an example of, of some of the things we're working on there. So chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, or COPD, affects a lot of our patients, particularly our elderly patients. And when you're having an episode and you can't breathe, oftentimes you're rushing to the emergency room. And what we found is for most, most of our patients, they can actually be effectively managed at a clinic with their doctor. And so in these environments where, where we've kind of reimagined how primary care will work, when a patient shows up in an emergency department with COPD, we're immediately notified, the clinics are immediately notified. And what happens is they're able to call the emergency department and have that patient, instead of admitted to the hospital, be discharged to the care of the primary care provider, which is a much more efficient, much less expensive way to go. And that allows that patient to be really effectively coordinated care. We found that we're able to intervene before really high costs interventions occur in a hospital just because of awareness and how we're organizing our, our clinical models. And that's just one example. You know, we're also working on personalized medicine, you know, sequencing the genomes of our patients so that we can tailor customized you know, really care process models, care plans for those patients. So if we want to know, for example, if people are carrying the BRCA1 gene, which gives you a markedly higher risk of breast cancer, so we can actually tailor your lifetime care plan to you. And that requires awareness, investment, longitudinal care models, and a longitudinal relationship with the patient. And so those are the things we're working on, believing that, hey, let's, if we get better and better at this, Instead of having a large, opaque, difficult-to-use healthcare environment, we could give a very tailored, direct, easy-to-use, customizable experience for our patients. And we have those experiences in every other industry. We just don't have them in healthcare. And so that's what we're working on. So, Dan, I'm struck by your, your two examples around, you know, the doctor asking who should be on my schedule. And it was one thing I picked up in your first example. And the other in this your second example was the idea of the need for longitudinal relationships. What does it all mean for the doctor-patient relationship, if anything? Does it mean that 
for a doctor to be able to say, rather than here's the 30 patients I have, who should I be seeing? Does it mean they need to have less patients on their schedule to create more flexibility? Or does it mean doctors need to work in teams so they can kind of triage and pass people around who needs to see who, which could obviously have implications for the doctor-patient relationship? Does the longitudinal relationship remain with the patient or does it transfer to the system? Listen, we want to create deep personal relationships with our patients. And healthcare is so complex now Oftentimes, patients have multiple clinician relationships, and none of that is tied together. And so if you're managing a chronic disease, you have a relationship with your specialist, often your primary care doctor, your pharmacist. There are whole teams of people already involved in your care. They're just not particularly well-coordinated. Look, I don't think people wake up every day and say, hey, the first person I'm excited to see is my doctor. I do think they want to have a trusted relationship. And the simple fact is, Jeff, over the next decade, and we've been really worried about this, if transactional medicine is the model we're going to carry into the future, meaning a single doctor, single patient, come in, see the doctor, generate a bill, there is no way that we can train enough doctors to handle the demand that's coming. We're going to be short 55,000 doctors in 2030. And you're already seeing those challenges today. We have 10,000 people a day aging into Medicare. You have 25,000 primary care doctors who are over the age of 65 who are going to be retiring. There's not enough backfill to, increase, to, you know, to service the demand. So what we're very concerned, concerned about, and I'm an economist at heart, you know, if you have a shift to the right in the demand curve and the amount of demand, and that's what you're seeing, a significant increase in demand for services. At the same time, the supply curve is shifting to the left. Jeff, you know what happens. It, you have a much higher equilibrium price. And what that means is that people who have means will be able to afford doctors and those without won't. And you're already seeing those disparities arise. Intermountain Health is a nonprofit organization. We're here to service our communities. And we've always been dedicated to taking care of people regardless of their ability to pay. And so when we think about creating new types of access, we've got to find a way for clinicians to increase their panel size from 1,500 to 3,000 patients without absolutely destroying their lives. And when you tell a clinician that today, there's no way that they can see how they could possibly do that. They would never have a moment of rest. And so what we're trying to do is to say, what are the support structures that we can build around clinicians so that they're focused on the people who really need to be seen that day? And all the routine stuff, let's offload that to a system. Let's offload that to other team members who can help them do that more effectively and in so doing, hopefully create a quality of life for our clinicians where they can actually live their best life while at the same time providing appropriate access for the, for the patients we serve. One of our, our clients put in a way that was just very striking. She said, there's not enough humans being born to take care of all the humans that need to be taken care of or, or something along those lines, right? Speaking to the kind of the upcoming demographic challenge, I like how you characterize it. So essentially get rid of unnecessary appointments, right? If you will, offload the routine that doesn't need to be done, allow doctors to increase their panel size and as parts of the solve. There's a nice pivot, Dan, because I want to talk about the Intermountain people, right, and the culture. And my observation would be is that a lot of my clients, a lot of people looked Intermountain Healthcare and say, how can we be that? How can we be the Intermountain of the Northeast or the Southwest or whatever the region is they're talking about? And in some ways, they all have the same access to the capital markets. They all have access to 
talent, right? Sometimes, you know, people need to move around and stuff, but there's probably answers to what makes Intermount, Intermount that go beyond your access to talent, capital, right? Knowledge. I'd just love to hear you reflect on the Intermountain culture, perhaps the good and bad of it, and what about it allows you to lead this transformation going forward? Jeff, I would say no culture is perfect, and the culture is always adjusting. I love this place, though, for a bunch of different reasons, not least of which I don't think there are more committed people to the mission of helping people live the healthiest lives possible. And what we, you see that every day. In fact, when we survey our, our people, that is the motivation. People come because they want to be part of that. And so we've got almost 60,000 caregivers. We call everybody caregivers. We're all caregivers, even though I don't directly touch patients, but we care. That's really hard to build and to replicate. And, and I think the generosity of the leaders over the years, the servant leadership approach, the let's do the right thing for the right reason for our community has been at the heart of what Intermountain's done for a long time. That said, also, we've had substantial advantages, a healthy population, a significant market share from the day we started the organization. We were able to, to launch our health plan because we had scale. We were able to invest in population health because we had a health plan and we had scale. So some of the innovations we made around clinical delivery and around payment model reform is because we, in many ways, were born on third base. And, and sometimes I think we, th- we think we hit a triple. I think we've done really, really well with what we've got, but there's more to do. And what I'm concerned about, Jeff, is payers just don't want to give risk to healthcare systems. They, they feel like that's their job. We collect premium, we manage the risk, and then healthcare systems, what they do is they provide transactional care. And we think that that model will not work. It does not work. It is not the right model for patients. The the health system is just too complex for transactional payments to ever actually change the incentive models and really help us figure out something new. And so Intermount has advantages there, but we hope to help other health systems build those advantages. Well, I love your third your third base quip, but I want to give you credit for something something else, which is just a willingness to take risk and not not financial risk, but strategic risk and and the and an innovativeness, right? That has led to all the things you're, you, you've talked about. And one thing I want to pivot to, which is Civic RX, right? So when you and I spoke, you know, last I. I'm forgetting exactly the time. I think you had just announced it or it was a relatively, you know, new venture. I'd love for you just to reflect on how that came to be the current and where it's going and how it fits into the inner mountain kind of view of, of helping people live their healthiest lives. Yeah, Jeff, I, I look, I could talk all day about civic. I, w- I will talk. I do want to say one thing. Intermountain has a lot of advantages and, and being born on third base doesn't score you a run. There's still a lot to do. And what we're trying to do is make sure that, that we're not stranded on third base, but that we bring it home and actually deliver really on our full potential. And we feel really fortunate and blessed to be in the situation we were in. And, but we also know that there's so much more we should be doing and can be doing, and we're determined to do it right. You know, so Civic RX, Jeff, you know this because you've written about it. This initiative really is an idea I had back in 2016. I had been really, I'm an economist, as I said, at heart. That's what I love. I, I love economics and when I watched uh, Heather Brush and the folks at Milan 
decry the awful situation in healthcare that that forced them to raise the price of EpiPen by 6,500%. I just found it disgusting and felt like, wait a second, markets don't typically work that way. What's going on in this market that allows a drug that's been on the market for 100 years to be cornered by a company and then they raise the price? And, and that really bothered me. And I thought, how can Congress fix that? I didn't really feel that optimistic that Congress had a desire to, to regulate the market. And even if they could, Congress just has a poor history of actually getting things right when they unleash a new regulatory regime. So I started thinking, like, how can the market police the market? How do we use market forces to kind of police the market? So we had this idea of essentially organizing the demand side of the equation, organize the people who buy the drugs, and let's start a nonprofit generic drug manufacturing company. And the idea would be that we would create essentially a nonprofit public utility model to make drugs. And, you know, fast forward to today, we launched the company four years ago last month, and we've now treated almost 40 million patients and are making over 60 drugs. And we've organized almost 60 health systems now involved with Civica around the country. We've also launched a company called Civica Script, which is a partnership with 23 large payers that cover 140 million people with the goal to address drugs that, that are in the outpatient market or the retail space, drugs like insulin. And it's just been a fun collaboration. We've organized large chunks of the industry. We just announced that we are making three molecules of insulin and uh, we'll bring those insulin molecules to the market in 2024 and um, hopefully um, dramatically reduce the cost burden of diabetes. And so we're excited, a lot going on there and you know, happy to dive deeper as you'd like to. Yeah, on the diabetes one in particular, because that's, the, I think, the, the newest news, or at least the newest news that I, I've been aware of. You know, it's one, to your point, Congress has been wrestling with and addressing even over the summer, and there was some back and forth, and in the end, you know, couldn't get to any resolution on, on solving the problem. So to your point, you're taking action where, and driving action where the government so far has, has failed to do so. So that's more of a, of a supply side issue, right? I'm just curious, the role of Civica in terms of you know, it's, it's role in the market. You and, I both, you and I are both University of Chicago guys, so we both kind of think the, the, the same way in demand and supply curves. Is the ultimate kind of goal to change the behavior of market participant, other market participants, or do you long-term want to be in the business of manufacturing medicines? We looked early on and said, if we don't make the medicines, you can't move the market. You've got to have the credibility to move the, the medicines to move the market. And so, yeah, we, th- we think you have to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. Economists will tell you that the reason why these markets consolidate with drugs is there are three reasons. One, there's inelastic demand for the drug, meaning if you need insulin and you don't have it, you die. Or epinephrine, if your kid brushes up against a peanut and they're in anaphylaxis, you don't have epinephrine, your kid dies in front of you. And so people will pay whatever it takes to live. So you have almost a perfectly vertical demand curve, right? And then there are huge economies of scale in manufacturing. It takes you millions and millions of dollars to develop insulin, to get the formula, to set up the production. But your first dose costs, you know, maybe a, a couple of dollars to make. And so you've got to spread your millions of dollars of investment over volume. But one thing I think people don't realize with drugs, there's not room for four or five or six manufacturers in a market. In a competitive market, you've got to have multiple com- com- competitors. The problem is with drugs, if you have five competitors, 
in some cases, you have five times the production capacity you need in the market because one production line can meet the entire market demand. And so what happens is people leave the market, the price becomes unstable, and then they leave, and then they leave one or two manufacturers in place, and those people those people essentially own a perfect market. You know, you can charge what you want, and you can essentially tax anybody who has the disease you're trying to treat. And so what we thought was we can try to stimulate a lot more competition by bringing multiple players in the market, that wouldn't make sense because they would probably never get to the right price because, again, you're, you're trying to spread five times the capacity over a set amount of volume. It's not like, it's not like you double the production of insulin, people are going to use twice as much. They're not. So what we thought was you can either have five manufacturers or you can have one honest one. And that's why it was so important to come in as a nonprofit to say, look, there's no way to make money here. The whole goal is to make just enough money for us to stay in the market. But there's no dividends to anybody. But if we could bring one additional honest competitor, we could start moving the market price. And that's what we've done with Civica. And so that's why it's so important to be a nonprofit. That's why it's so important to actually be focused on a mission of making sure that essential drugs are available and affordable to everyone. And what's important about Civica, Jeff, is that we do not focus on market share. We focus on market impact. What's happening to the price and availability of drugs? And if the market's performing well, we won't make the product. But where the market's broken, and it's a drug that's critical, and where we feel like people are getting ripped off, that's where Civica will enter to regulate through a private market mechanism the abuses of that market. And so I watch it. It is hard enough to have diabetes, but to add on top of that exploitive pricing made me mad. And so when I came up with this idea and it kind of came to me and I just thought one day we're going to make insulin. And then I found guys like Clay Christensen, you know, my first conversation with Clay, he said, Dan, he pulled out his vial of insulin. He said, let's make insulin one day. And, and so, you know, for me, that's the return. That's the return. That's enough for me. Just feeling like that maybe we can change some lives. And, and I think sometimes people think that markets are only about making money, but you can have market mechanisms to do good and to generate different types of returns. And that's frankly the return that I'm more interested in. How can I help a bunch of people? That means something to me personally, and I'm motivated by it. So uh, yeah, it's fun. We're, we're on our way and we hope to bring the price of insulin down by, by around 90%. Very powerful. And I think, I, I think I'm going to leave it there. You just said it beautifully. So thank you for that. Dan, it was great having you. I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for so covering thank it. Look, what I hope in telling these stories is that maybe somebody also have a good idea that they're inspired by and they go run with. And that's, that's where spending the time talking about this stuff. It's not often you get to have an idea and then see it come about and actually, you know, watch it come true. It's been, it's been a dream come true for me, but if, if, if this helps inspire maybe other people to solve other problems, I mean, that's, that's how the industry is going to have to change. Well, and you and I will both had a good day if we can do that. Yeah. Thanks, my man. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to Profits Healthcare Transformers podcast. This podcast is produced by Jared Johnson and his wonderful team at Shift Forward Health. And a big thank you to our hosts, Priya and Asia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. If you liked today's episode, you can find more great content like this at profit.com slash thinking. I'm Anna Kuno, the senior editor of this podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>